This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by Amos Advantage, your ultimate destination for coin collecting accessories. Receive free shipping on orders over $65. This is a limited time offer, so shop AmosAdvantage.com today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome back to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm a rather under-the-weather Chris Bullfinch. We have a fascinating show for you this week. We're going to talk about the ANA. We're going to talk about hobo nickels. We have some information about toning and Canada's death dollar. And we'll even throw in a trivia question. And remember, if you enjoy this episode or if you've enjoyed any of the previous episodes, remember to keep on listening every week. And to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on pretty much every platform, so we're pretty easy to find. So now that you've done that plug, I want to make a plug for the ANA. It's coming up here in mm. very soon. Chris and I will both be there, as will senior editor Paul Jokes. Make sure to, to find us at the show. We want to meet you if you're listening and you're a collector, even a dealer. These shows are always a great time for the coin community to gather and reconnect. And, of course, as a collector, it's fun to, to find stuff to buy. I always say that coin shows are a chance to see old friends and make new ones. So let's make new friends with you at the ANA this year in Rosemont or as I call it, Chicago-ish, because it's not really Chicago, but it's kind of Chicago. But it's, of course, it's gotten a lot better the last few years. In any event, come see us, and we would love to meet you there. Our trivia this week relates to the interview topic later, sort of. So the trivia this week, it's a novice-level trivia question. I bet you'll get this. Oh, boy. And the listeners play along here. The question is the 1916 Buffalo five-cent coin doubled, listed in the Red Book, a planchet, die, or striking error? So this is a specific year Buffalo nickel, or five-cent coin, and there's an issue with it. And is that a planchet problem, a die problem, or striking error? How, error? I, do, I do love multiple-choice questions. It's how I got through the SAT. So you have you have a 33% chance of getting this right. Probably, probably better than my math average. Probably 100% that you'll get it, though, because it's, it's pretty easy when you think about it. Is the 1916 doubled Buffalo 5-cent coin in the Red Book a planchet die or striking error? So let's come back to that in a little bit later. Now we're going to share some more knowledge this time. You're going to explain something about toning, isn't that right? All right. So toning is not just uh, something that you describe someone's voice with. It's not a tone of voice. It's toning on a coin. The coins are made out of metal, in many cases precious metal, silver or gold or platinum, but you know, copper and nickel and lots of other metals are used. And as anyone who did even passably well in a chemistry course, which I don't know that I qualify for, but I do know about this. As anyone who knows anything about chemistry and the sort of interaction of metals with other elements knows, most metals oxidize, which is to say that they absorb either oxygen if they're out in if they're just out in the air on planet Earth, or if they're stored in a bag with or some other form of holder with all kinds of chemicals around, 
Coins and their metals do react chemically with things in their environment. So they're reactive. They're, yeah, they're not proactive. They're reactive. And toning refers to coloration, or some might call it discoloration in certain cases, that arises when a coin reacts chemically with something in the environment and it changes its physical appearance, specifically its color. So toning can arise from any number of things. If you just leave a coin out in the air for a while, that metal will change over time, sometimes a long period of time in a way that'll affect its color. If you store it in a bag, often old canvas bags that they would use to store coins in bank vaults were actually not chemically inert. So coins on the very edge of the bag, you know, their their faces, their obverses or their reverses are pressed up against the side of the bag as the bag changes over time or decomposes, particularly if the coins have been in the vault for a long time, those chemicals will interact with the metals in the coin and will often produce toning. Now, Toning can be very subtle, just a little tiny bit of a, a tiny bit of coloration or discoloration, very subtle. You know, sometimes it's dark, sometimes it's it, there are lighter colors, but sometimes you can find coins that look like, a you know, a Skittles packet inside. It's just it's a giant rainbow. It's a huge, a huge number of different colors, very bright and vivid colors. And those coins are often very highly prized. Now, there are types now the. Toning is in the eye of the polder to some extent in terms of attractiveness. Some people like really dark toning on silver or copper coins or on any other kind of coins. Some people like really vibrant wild color toning. But toning in general often does add value, mostly because it tells you a little something about how the coin was stored. If it was in a canvas bag in a bank, the example I talked about earlier, that toning is going to look very different than what's called album toning, which is if you leave a coin in an album, particularly albums made a long time ago, before uh, coin storage materials were chemically inert because people didn't think about that um, a long time ago and the technology wasn't really there. But if it's stored in a really old kind of holder or album, it'll get its own kind of toning, which is referred to as album toning. And again, some people love toning and and seek out really wildly toned coins. Andy Kimmel, a previous podcast guest of ours, actually specializes in that. So there are some people that will make that their whole specialty and their whole sort of area of focus and interest. And there are some people who really don't like it and who just want to buy sort of clean, not cleaned, but clean in appearance. No, to That is to say no toning coins. And really all the way in between. I have a lot of toned coins in my collection, as does Jeff. And... You know, they can make for a really interesting and visually distinct example to add to your collection. So the word this week is toning. So uh, mind your tone. And I would add, I think I think it's um, the safest description about toning, regardless of the color, is it means green. <laughs> because usually it costs more. And ha, it's funny. If if you're a newer collector, that is it is it can be a dicey area because some folks artificially tone coins. That's there's all sorts of research into that subject. Yeah. It can be a very involved third, and prickly subject, but it is third, fascinating. Some third party slabs even have labels that say questionable toning. You can yes. actually find those around. Yes. So anyway, so that is now your term. If we talk about toning in the future, you will now know what it is that we're prattling on about. So, Jeff. Something was going on this week in history. All right. Let's hear, let's hear a little bit about what was happening in the world of numismatics long ago. So we've already gone back to the 19-teens with our trivia question. We're jumping forward a little bit, but still back in time. This week in history, it was August 7th, 1954. 
That was the final minting of the Booker T. Washington, George Washington Carver commemorative half dollars. So the commemorative coin program began in 1892. It continued, although interrupted by World War II, it continued until 1954, the last day, August 7th, 1954, with these coins celebrating the two black American heroes, the scientist, the inventor, the Booker T. Washington, George Washington Carver, notables of American history. Then there was a pause, no commemorative coins under the auspices of the commemorative coin program until 1982. Some could argue that the bicentennial coins were commemorative, but they weren't commemorative like we think of all those commemorative coins from 1892 to 1954. So that's what was happening this week in numismatic history. Now we're going to stay in the 1950s, and you're going to tell us we are. about something that happened up north in Canada. And we're going to be we're going to be talking about life and death. So. In 1958, Canada issued a new silver dollar coin to commemorate the 100th anniversary of their independence from Britain. Now, Canada's political early political history is complicated, to say the least. They wouldn't actually be confederated as Canada until 1867, which meant in 1967 a whole other set of commemorative coins were minted. But that's a little bit far afield. So in 1958, they wanted to create a commemorative silver dollar. Canada had had circulating silver dollars since 1935, and in honor of their 100th anniversary, they wanted to have a distinctive reverse on their dollar coins as an acknowledgement of their 100th anniversary as an independent country. So, in a nod to an indigenous history, they decided to have a sort of native Canadian First Nations-themed motif, and they decided to have a totem pole, sort of apropos of the what we call the Pacific Northwest, but for them, I guess, would be the Pacific Southwest. They wanted to have a totem pole on this coin to acknowledge the indigenous people that were there before and sort of the long history of human settlement in Canada. The Royal Canadian Mint contracted an artist named Stephen Trenka to design the reverse, and he elected to portray a totem pole. Now, generally, that's a fairly inoffensive theme, and he executed it very well. The obverse was the standard portrait of Queen Elizabeth II that appeared on the coins of all of the former British colonies, all the Dominion, all the Commonwealth nations. So that standard bust of Queen Elizabeth II appeared on the obverse, and then the reverse was a totem pole. There was one little tiny detail of the totem pole, though, that is why it is remembered by such a colorful moniker, the Death Dollar, today. Trenka didn't do his research on First Nations symbols quite as well as he probably should have. And on the very bottom of the totem pole is a face, sort of looks like a human face, as opposed to an animal like a, a bird or something. There's a little, a little face at the very bottom of the totem pole that is in fact a native symbol for death. That is the, the god or the deity or the sort of metaphysical embodiment of death appears on the bottom of the in totem that pole. culture. In the First Nations native Canadian culture, or whatever culture that totem pole was, well, it came from. So not only did Tranka not notice it, but apparently the Royal Canadian Mint didn't notice it either because they minted millions of these coins right with, with Death's face right on the bottom of the totem pole and then sent them all out. And pretty quickly, First Nations tribe members and, and scholars and pe- anyone who really knew about this brought the issue up to the Canadian Mint, but it was far too late. They'd already minted them and put them out into the world. And so they 
now are referred to as death dollars because of the presence of the face of death on the bottom of the totem pole on the reverse. Now, they're very, very common and highly collectible today. They come up at, at auctions and you could probably find them in coin shops and trade them online. They're quite plentiful and they're pretty cheap. You can get a nice looking uncirculated example for if you go to the right place, 20, 25, 30 bucks for a decent looking uncirculated oh, piece. And if you're going to pay $30, it might be slabbed because yeah. I know I've seen them for, they melt at like $10 US and, and, and yeah. you can usually find them, you know, 15 to $20. Oh, and, and people sell crappy looking ones for scrap. I mean, yeah. there, are, there are people who will sell really not good looking examples for their uh, intrinsic value in silver. So they're very common. So if you're interested in, in this kind of colorful story, you can go out and find one very, very easily. They're pretty much everywhere. So now you know why 1958 was the year of Canada's death dollar. Now, I think I need to answer this question about all of these these types. Yes, the we, we talked nickel. about, we just talked about native peoples of Canada. There's a native on the Indian head five cent coin, the Indeed. buffalo nickel. The question to recap, 1916. Doubled Buffalo five cent piece in the Red Book. How is it listed as a planchet, die, or striking error? Well, since it's the 1916 double die error, I have to imagine that it is a die mistake or a, a die. Yes, whatever. that is that variety. is correct. That is how the Red Book a listed di- wait, die for double die. Yeah, so it's a it is a, a die flaw or a die issue. Yes, very good. So so there is the answer to the trivia question. That was that was I, I think a gimme. Maybe you um, had issues with it, but in any case, we'll have another one in the next show. Now I think Chris, there's something that everyone out there just has to see. You got to see this. You have got to see this this week. This is coming to us like a lot of you got to see this posts from the major numismatic subreddit r slash coins, r coins as it is commonly referred to. This post comes from r slash coins from user Scratius or Scratius. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It is a capital S C R A T I U S. So pronounce that however you want. I'm really not sure how to do it. But, but we'll have a link in the show notes. We'll have a link in the show notes. And what are we looking at? What do, what do we have we to We are see? looking at a small collection of world silver pieces, some very interesting world silver pieces, but there is one that really stands out. And the the link that will bring you through to a, an Imgur page, and Imgur, never been clear on how to pronounce the site's name. And in this collection of world silver, in the, the first image on the top left, there is a very distinctive looking metal. It is a Sardinian Ottoman metal that was minted in 1855 in honor of the then ongoing Crimean War. Now, and its obverse is especially interesting. Its reverse looks like standard Ottoman silver coins and medals of a similar size. But its obverse is absolutely fascinating. It has the flags of France, Britain, the Ottoman Empire, and Sardinia, which were four of the major belligerents who were all allied in the Crimean War against the Russian Empire. And it has a big siege cannon right in the middle between some of these flags. And it is an absolutely fascinating piece that refers to a one of the first modern wars and a serious and very important event in the history of mid-19th century Europe. The, this, the conflict in, well, a whole bunch of places uh, right along the border between Europe and Asia. And this medal is a fascinating piece, sort of numismatic, exonumic piece of that history. 
it's an absolutely striking medal. You don't see a lot of them. And I thought that it would be important for our listeners to be able to see that. So go to our show page on whatever podcast platform you use or go to our website. Go to our website. Yeah, go to our website. Drive traffic. And you can uh, click on this link and it'll take you to it. And you can check out this Crimean War medal for yourself. It is absolutely fascinating. Oh, Crimea River. Ha! You know, how much do you want to bet that one of the British soldiers said that at some point when they were in Crimea? I don't know. That, that phrase may not have been popularized by then. Amos Advantage is a proud sponsor of the Coin World Podcast. Whether you're looking for numismatic books, storage, or cleaning supplies, Amos Advantage has you covered. Visit AmosAdvantage.com today. And now, back to the show. Now, after we've, we've done all of our regular uh, fun stuff, we have one more fun thing for you. That was my interview with Chris Dempsey, who he's a coin dealer, but we really didn't talk about that. What interested me was his passion for Hobo Nichols and a particular way that he is collecting them. He is unique in this approach, very close to having the, the set complete, very fun, very educational. So And it just goes to show you're never going to find a bad numismatist named Chris. I am thrilled to be joined by Chris Dempsey today. Chris is notable for his work at Dempsey and Baxter, a coin firm in Pennsylvania, right? Erie, Pennsylvania. Erie, Pennsylvania. Okay, up by the lake. But that's not the reason I wanted to talk to you today, Chris. You have done something. This is the collector side that really excites me, and I think our listeners will appreciate learning about. So thank you for sharing a few moments with us today. No problem. You always have to take the time to talk to you. Awesome. So let's take the listeners on this journey with you. You are building what to me is just seems like an awesome set. I love the concept. People know about Hobo Nickels. But mm-hmm. you're taking that a bit further by building a set of hobo nickels by date and mint mark. That's correct. Yeah, the uh, I had bought so many hobo nickels as a as an avid collector of them over the years that I got about 20 or so dates about 10 years ago, and I said, you know what, this would be kind of an uphill battle, but it'd be pretty fun to do a date and mint mark set of these. No one has ever completed one that was all old hobo nickels. Fellow by the name of Norm Talbert, who was a pretty well-known coin dealer, passed away years ago. Did a date set that was a mix of old and new, but no one had ever completed a date mint mark set of old ones. At this point, I had decided I was going to do an old set of them. Uh, right now, I'm down to about four dates that I need, but it kind of takes a few things at this stage of the game to do a set like this. Uh, you have to have a ton of luck because there's not a lot of dates out there. <laughs> you have to have a lot of time, and uh, obviously I have some money too. But I'm a pretty young man at 38 years old, so I figured I had the time. Finding the coins has proven to be extraordinarily difficult. For somebody who doesn't know, how many examples do you need for a Dayton Mint Mark set of Buffalo Nickels, period? Well, it depends on whether you're doing all varieties, too. I want to say there's about 65 coins by Dayton Mint Mark. Okay. Um, I, have, I have the 18 over 17 the three-legger and the 14 over 13. Okay. Um, okay. So I've got probably, probably, I probably have 65 coins now. I need about four coins left to finish it. So, so there are diagnostics still visible on those coins or only one side was carved? I mean, how can you be certain the uh, the overdate or the three-legged, for example? Well, the thing with Hobo Nichols is they didn't always leave the dates. So for this particular set, it had to be Hobo Nichols where the dates were clear. 
So in other words, they, they carved everything away or they, they left the date in liberty, uh, but it always has to have a date. So in this particular example, I have an 18 over 17D that they carved everything away except for the date. Uh, so the, the, the back is still the buffalo side, has the D mint mark. The obverse has a hobo on it. They actually, they actually chiseled away all the fields and everything else, but they left the date crisp and clear on a VF host coin. Uh, so you can see the 18 over 17 clear as day. Okay, but what about the three-legger? The three-legger? The three-legger, they carved the front. They didn't carve the back. Ah. That's how you can tell. The, 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 you can tell by the diagnostic on the back. Uh, actually, there's no date on that one, believe it or not. But it had the raggy leg uh, on the back. It has all the diagnostics, diagnostics from the reverse to be able to tell that that one is the three-legger. It's also the only known three-legger, so I kind of had to settle a little bit for one that didn't have a date. <laughs> yeah, you kind of deviate from that plan a little bit. So, yep. so let's talk about, um, you know, I think some of our listeners, listeners will know what hobo nickels are. Some may not. Uh, we certainly hope to uh, get this out to a wider audience. Yeah, to, to me, it's the epitome of popular folk art, uh, certainly from the era. Talk about what the hobo nickel is and what drew you to them. Well, the, uh, the fun part about hobo nickels is it's kind of a crossover category. Yes, it's obviously related to what we do and what we collect as, as numismatists or coin collectors, um, but it's also a very folk artsy kind of hobby. So there's actually people that don't collect coins that do collect hobo nickels. Um, I have a fellow, I know a friend, I have a friend of mine that's an archaeologist who doesn't collect coins, but he collects hobo nickels. That's well, pretty cool. Absolutely. Um, he doesn't collect coins, but he collects hobo nickels. So that means right. he collects coins. Well, yeah. <laughs> yes. He's not specifically a coin collector. Sure. Coins, sure. Uh, but, but that's also, there's kind of a differentiation on hope for hobo nickel collectors is that not all hobo nickel collectors were interested in them because they were coin related. They were interested in them because they were folk art related. So it's a little bit of a, uh, it's a weird collectible as far as numismatics go, rather, but there's a, there's a whole world of collectors that don't actually care about coins that are buying them for the art form rather than the coin form. It's kind of a crossover. But there's a ton of people, myself included, that love Hobo Nickels, both for the fact that you know, I'm a huge coin guy, but also because it's a super cool folk art category and it's a period in history that's really kind of interesting. Absolutely. So what sort of evidence do we have to support the narrative that hobo nickels were carved by itinerant travelers in the 1930s, the Great Depression, and were traded for food, housing, that sort of thing? I mean, I know there's some major tomes in the series, but what can we point to as solid evidence? Do we have first-person interviews with the hobos and the people who received the carvings? What do you know of this scholarship of that? Well, there's some books written by Del Romines and his wife, Joyce Ann Romines, as well as a, a hobo nickel aficionado um, uh, by the name of Steve Alpert that, that kind of cover some of that. The likelihood is that while the mythology is that they were, they were passing these off to people and trade for food or housing or whatever they needed, the likelihood is that this probably dates back further to love tokens. Love tokens were traded at places like carnivals and fairs, for instance, and they were already pre-carved and ready to go, so people come up and buy a love token and have their have loved ones' initials put on yeah. it. The likelihood is that a lot of the better hobo nickels that are out there from the period were almost certainly sold at places like carnivals and fairs. And yes, through you know the stories changing and uh, you know the oral history of it, technically it was probably traded for things they needed. But the reality is it was probably sold for actual money and then used for things that they needed as a semi-profession. A lot of those people that were doing love tokens in the late 1800s, they'd still be alive in the, 19, in the teens and the 20s to be able to carve these things and still 
use that uh, skill to their to their benefit. There are a, f- a handful of artists that come to mind, uh, certainly when viewing the Hobo Nickel Pantheon, and of course, the two at the top of the list are Bo and Bert. That's correct. What can you Bert, share about them? Bert uh, Wagon was, he was Bo Hughes' mentor. So Bert came around, I want to say, in the early 1900s, and Bo caught up with him when he was just a teenager, and I don't know, the, I don't remember the whole story off the top of my head, but Bo essentially ran away from home, met Bert, and Bert started to teach him about carving. Berts tend to be a, a lot more rare than bows. Not always, but most signed Berts are pretty scarce. So you can get, those will sell anywhere from four to upwards of $15,000 a piece. Bo Hughes carvings, uh, he carved such a wide array of coins. They're a lot more accessible, They're usually less money, but they're still, they're still pretty hard to find. They're still pricey. Most Bo Hughes carvings can be bought for the really low-end stuff for two to $300 for the starter level, and uh, I paid as much as $24,000 for one, so that should tell you, you know, how good they can be. The, it's a pretty cool story as far as the two of them. They ran together for a long time until Bert kind of just fell off the map. Bo carved allegedly until about 1980 or so when he presumably died. Dell, who supposedly knew Bo personally, lost contact with him in 1980, so Supposedly, that's when Bo uh, passed away. I believe the proper nomenclature is caught the westbound. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, is, that is correct, uh, particularly with the Hobo Society. Uh, caught the westbound is used for uh, when someone passes away that is a hobo or hobo-related. Awesome. So you talked about signed examples. Are these actual signatures? Are these just the telltale signs of an artistic style? Because I know some artists, like Peanut Ear, I think is one of them, that, you know, we don't know the name of the person, but you can tell that there's stylistically these all match up. Correct. All those things, actually, uh, you look for. So, for instance, Bert signed his name by taking the L-I and the Y off of Liberty on the obverse of the coin, which would just leave Bert. But he didn't always do that. In fact, signed verts are very, very rare. Many times he didn't do that. And then you have to go to the stylistic differences to tell whether this is really a Bert or whether it was Bo or whether it's neither one of them. George Washington Bo Hughes, he actually did sign his name. He didn't sign his whole name. It was a long name. He <laughs> signed it GH most of the time. There is actually one example where he, where he signed it Bo, and he carved Bo into the coin. Most of them, if they are signed, which most of them are not signed, but if they are signed, they're usually carved GH. Now, as far as nickname carvers go, carvers that have been attributed by the Hobo Society, sometimes there's initials on them, but there's no real way to trace those back to who they were. Um, there's been a couple of guys that we know who they were just because the family members came forward and we were able to attribute them back to their professions and what they were doing and where they were. Most of them are unknown, just like most folk art. There's no real way to trace it back to who the guy was originally. But typically speaking, birds and bows can or can't be signed, depending on whether they did it or not. Other than that, we kind of rely on stylistic differences what tools they were using to carve them with. And, you know, the tools can range anywhere from professional jeweler's tools, because if you think about it, during the period, jewelers would have been out of work, so they would have been carving this stuff and, and presumably making better quality coins, right down to things that were like screwdrivers that, that they ground off to uh, be sharp implements, pocket knives and chisels. and So there's some pretty crude ones out there, too. I like to think that the crude ones are more likely ones that were done by actual hobos who would be sitting around campfires and things like that just because they didn't necessarily have the skill level to create something that was a work it was a masterpiece versus someone who might have more uh, like a tool and die or a jeweler background but yeah typically speaking they're not usually signed pretty rare to find them signed if you find a signed one that you can attribute you got something really good and how does one make sure that 
they have an actual period piece versus a, a modern iteration, setting aside the fact that there are folks who are modern carvers and, and coin rollers reported on them, they're, and they're using all sorts of modern tools and so forth. How does one tread that path lightly, and is that maybe where the original Hobo Nickel Society comes in? That's correct. The original Hobo Nickel Society, if you're not sure what you have, they do offer a quality designation service where you can actually send your coins to them. I'm not sure what the fee is off the top of my head, but and you can have them attributed by you know, people who actually know this stuff. You can also see me, whenever you see me at a coin show, I'll usually give you a free verbal opinion. I don't really charge anybody for that. I'm happy to look and talk hobos because it's obviously a big passion of mine. There's a few telltale signs you can look at. Obviously, if the coin is on some kind of good date, I had a fella a long time ago that messaged that saw me at a show and he said, you know, I had the, the opportunity to buy a hobo nickel and I wasn't sure it was real. And I said, what was the date of the coin? He goes, well, it was an XF1919S nickel. And I said, well, let's think this through for a second. <laughs> no one today is carving up an, an XF or an AU1919S nickel. And he just about shot himself in the foot by not buying it because it could have been something really good, but it was almost certainly an old one. Um, the other telltale sign, typically speaking, is most modern carvers is a pride of craftsmanship with their work. So most of them do sign it in some way. There's a few that don't, and usually those guys are usually using pretty low-end quality coins. You get, you know, buffalo nickels that are dateless buffalo nickels, and they'll carve on those because they don't cost very much, 10 or 15 or 20 cents. But typically speaking, the better carvers, they actually do sign their work. Sometimes it's on the rim of the coin, so you might have to look. But many times they're signing their work because they want people to know, listen, I carved this, I'm proud of this. Awesome. If somebody is interested in this area, though, because of the they're already collecting buffalo nickels, because they're they like this idea of the period folk art, what do they start with as far as a piece to buy? Do they see what modern carvers are doing? Do they start saving up for a low end piece? How would you advise somebody to jump in and really start enjoying and, and learning about these? Well, everybody has a different viewpoint as far as what they want to collect, so it's different depending on who you are. Uh, there's Some collectors will jump in and go, I only want to buy the ones that are $13,000. They're not going to buy many coins because there's not that many coins out there at that level. But most people, just like any other collector that's starting, usually you get your feet wet. If you buy the modern, some modern stuff, it's usually a little less expensive. It's actually the, also the largest portion of the Hope Nickel market is modern collectors because there's not a lot of old ones for sale. They're just, you know, there's just a finite amount of those coins, and a lot of them are in collector hands like mine. But typically speaking, I would recommend people, if you're going to buy Hobo Nickels, go to somebody, first of all, this is going to sound like a plug, but I don't mean it that way, someone like myself that really knows them. If you're going to buy an old one, then you kind of know what you're getting. But otherwise, I would say start just like you do with anything else when you start collecting. Most people don't jump right in and spend $10,000 on a coin. They go, you know what, I'm going to spend 50 bucks and buy something nice. And then you can buy a nice modern, you can buy kind of a lower-end classic carving or vintage carving, uh, and you're not going to hurt yourself too bad if you make a mistake or two. Obviously, in any collectible, there's going to be some mistakes that happen when you're collecting, but find somebody that knows them, find somebody that you can trust on that stuff, and then you know start slow in most cases. You don't get in too deep if you decide you don't want to do it. But no, it's a pretty amazing hobby. There's you know, a very small but voracious collector base of that stuff. There are meetings at a fun show every January with the Hobo Nickel Society. And they have an auction there. Among, amongst collectors, too. Right, and they have an auction there every year? There's an auction every year. Usually about 120 or so lots varies depending on year to year how many lots they get. Uh, but there's lots of opportunities there. There's tons of good deals in, in that auction. And there's some really great coins to trade, too. In fact, the one that I bought, which set the record 
for the most thing, when they were paid for one at $24,200, I actually bought it out of that auction. Wow. And what was that piece? That is probably the most identifiable hobo nickel from the period. It's actually on the front cover of the third guidebook, which is the only one that's in print. In the obverse, it has just a standard hobo, but really well done hobo on the front. And it says Darwin, D.C. On the back, it's got a boxcar that has a Pennsylvania Railroad emblem on it. It says Dicer underneath it, which means a fast train. It's got three hobo nickels, one sitting inside it, just kind of reclining, one uh, sitting on top of it, kind of reclining, and one guy hanging off the side. It's just a really cool... And it's the only one that's like it. It's the only, excuse me, it's the only one that's like it. It's one of a kind. It's the most famous one out of all the ones that have been made. Uh, it gets the most press at all of them. And it was one of those, it's been in collector hands for 50 years. I just had to have it. That's great. And the chance to get something like that is maybe a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity? If I had not bought that, I would have probably never got a chance to buy it again. And I'm, again, I'm a pretty young man. Awesome. Awesome. So you talked about the popularity or rather the population numbers of authentic original period pieces. If you were to hazard a guess, what sort of range are we talking? Are are we talking a few hundred, a few thousand, somewhere in between? Or am I way off? There's probably, I mean, there's easily, there's easily probably 10,000 of them. The problem is that it's not really a problem either. The reason why you can't find them is that most collectors that collect them, they don't buy five or 10. It's not a collection that ever ends. So many collectors that I know, they'll have 500 of them at one time. Now, for what I'm doing, I probably have 150 or 200, but I only bought the finest of the finest. So it, my collection's smaller than what some of those mega collections would be. But there are collections out there that they, they have a thousand old coins in them. Yeah. So, uh, so, so, so you're collecting exactly what percentage of them? I can give you, I can give you a more finite percentage of you know what qualities are. So for like superior quality carvings. Less than about 5% of the old carvings are superior quality. Um, if you want to talk about like double-sided or reverse carvings, about 1% of the total approximate populations of old, of old carvings are carved on the reverse because it was a more difficult side to carve on. Smaller surface area of the buffalo, you had to do it in some kind of unique way. So usually that, usually that means a man with a walking stick. But most of those are not that way. They're very hard to find. Okay, that's good to know. Now, your collection then is is bifurcated. You have the the date mint mark set, and then you have the the best of the best, right? Is that a fair? That's correct. Okay. I would not claim that I have all the best ones. There's one out there that, that I've made the guy several offers that he won't sell it for me, but they sell it to me. That's one coin that if I ever get it, I think that would probably finish my my collection as far as the, as far as those go. But I have the date mint mark set, which has been extraordinarily difficult. I've been working on that for a decade. And then I have uh, a lot of the finest known examples uh, by Burt Bow and then a lot of the unknown carvers. So I've got a ton of just really spectacular stuff that I've acquired over the last 12 years or so. But I've been really voracious buyer of it, and I always wanted to have the best stuff. So no collection is built overnight. A lot of those coins were bought one at a time. But, uh, no, I do have I do have quite a few of uh, unique and really amazing quality carvings or designs that you can't find anywhere. So which four do you need to complete the set? I need, and you could make my day if you find, if anyone <laughs> has them out there in, uh, in Coin World land, I need a 24S, I need a 25D, a 1925S, and a 1926D hobo nickel. The reason why those specific dates, I mean, a lot of those dates are, are lower vintage anyways, the later date nickels for hobo nickels are more unusual to find those. So most hobo nickels were carved from uh, carved on 1913 to about 1917 nickels. After that, 
the coins get much more difficult to find, particularly when you get into the 30s. But some of those the late 20s or mid 20s uh, dates are really pretty difficult. So that's why I'm down to those those ones, not early ones. That would Usually seem when you see them, they're early dates. So that would seem to really be more evidence for these nickels being carved earlier and not in the 30s by the Depression-era hobos because, obviously, they're carving what's in circulation, and if if it's 1922, then the the later stuff's not out yet. That's correct. And the the later stuff, by the late 1930s, hobo nickel carving... I wouldn't say that people weren't doing it anymore, but it it kind of fallen off, fallen out of fashion. There weren't people riding the rails really like like they were. It just it just wasn't really much of a thing anymore. And while there were still people that were doing it, they definitely were not doing it to the degree that they had been doing it in the teens and twenties. Awesome. So, what other thoughts about hobo nickels should somebody know that I didn't address? I mean, uh, it's it's to me it's it's been a fun topic to learn about in my 15 years here at Coin World, and I, I bought a few modern pieces just because they're fun. Anything else? Uh, closing thoughts? Well, I would not recommend trying to put together a date mint mark set of hobo nickels. <laughs> not until you finish yours, anyway. Well, you can do it. Um, there's a couple guys trying. They're nowhere close to complete. But I would say, you know, enjoy it. There's no real right or wrong for collecting hobo nickels. It's not like a Morgan Dollar set where you get one of every date mint mark and you're done. Hobo nickels kind of goes on forever. Every, you know, no matter how many you get, no matter how many just standard design hobo nickels you get, they're all going to be a little different. So um, it's really a, it's really a collectible that is unlike other collectibles in our hobby in that every one you buy is going to be its own unique piece. Even if you have two of the same carver, they're going to be there's going to be differences in the way they're done because it was all hand done. So for that reason, it's it's pretty cool and it's a collection that my kids love it. My son's first coin was a potty nickel, and he went <laughs> nuts over it. So uh, I mean, it's it's a pretty cool hobby, and it's, there's really no end to it uh, as far as you can take it as far as you want, or you can stop whenever you want. But there's no set parameter for what you have to collect in hobo nickels. You can do a little, you can do it all. Awesome. On that note, I'm going to thank you for your time and your thoughts on what to me is a fun topic, and maybe this will flush out another one or two pieces for you in the meantime. Well, I hope so. Thank you. <laughs> we'll, we'll see you at A&A shortly, and happy collecting. Sounds good. Thanks for talking to me today. Appreciate it. Thanks again for listening to the episode this week. Hope you enjoyed our interview with Chris Dempsey and our look back at history and and all sorts of terms. And remember, if you enjoyed this episode, if you didn't enjoy this episode, if you've enjoyed any previous episodes in the past, if you just want to go do a fun free thing that will help people you listen to, please remember to keep listening to our podcast every week and to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And always remember, you can reach out to us. We appreciate hearing from you. And we appreciate all your support. So until next week, happy collecting and we'll see you at the ANA. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World Podcast was brought to you by Amos Advantage, your ultimate destination for coin collecting accessories. Receive free shipping on all orders over $65. This is a limited time offer, so shop AmosAdvantage.com today.